Good morning and happy Sabbath. Um, I think it's a weekend where a lot of people are away or sick. I think this is the smallest group we've had since we started church in <laughs> four years ago. But I'm very glad you're here. Those of you who are here, those of you who are visiting, welcome. Uh, and those of you who are watching online, um, welcome as well. Today I wanted to do something a bit different. Um, you know, we've been, we've been doing different series. We did a different uh, series on No More Fear. Um, we have... Um, looked at the series of Joseph, um, and in the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at how to control our temper and what the Bible says about taming our tempers. But in between, um, I wanted to do uh, a sermon that told you a story um, about somebody who made a big impact on my life. You see, growing up, my parents instilled in me two principles, love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul and body and spirit, and love your neighbor as yourself. And they demonstrate the kind of sacrifice and generosity and dedication required to live out those principles. And so I grew up embracing unselfishness as the way of life that brings about true happiness. But when I got older and I attended uni away from home, I got distracted for a few years. Um, I had a boyfriend, and then there was drama following all that. And anyway, what ended up happening was that ultimately I got stuck in this self-focused way of life. What I wanted, what I felt, what happened to me, and it led me to becoming quite unhappy. I still went to church every week. I was still youth leader. I was still teaching Bible studies. I was singing and playing the guitar as part of the praise and worship team. I was organizing the weekly campus small group, but I'd forgotten why I did all those things. I'd forgotten what it meant to be a Christian. I had lost the joy of serving God because he was my all in all. In fact, he wasn't my all in all in that moment. He was my sometimes. He was someone I turned to sometimes in prayer when I needed him. Sometimes when I was worshiping him on Sabbaths. Sometimes when, you know, the circumstances were right. And when I wasn't preoccupied with my own feelings of self-pity or self-importance. And I was stuck wanting people to validate those, my feelings and forgot about the needs of others. And in the summer between my third and final year in uni, I had an internship um, in Aix-en-Provence, France for 10 weeks. I was very blessed to be able to have the opportunity because I was studying French literature at the time. At the time, I wanted to be a theology professor, so I was studying French, German, and religion and philosophy. And so I thought, hey, here's an opportunity for me to go immerse myself in the language and the culture. And so I went. And my first Sabbath there, um, I looked up the Adventist church. It was always the first thing I do when I travel. I got there and I discovered this small but friendly community of, um, of believers. And after church, um, a couple approached me and invited me for, for lunch at their home, which was very nice. And um, little realizing what I was getting myself into, I said yes. You know, I thought, oh, free lunch. You know, here I am. Be nice to eat something. Um, I didn't realize when I got into their car that they lived an hour and a half away <laughs> in a place called Le Durban, which is in the base of the French Alps. <laughs> and... Um, it was a it was a very long drive, you know. I was I was I had just arrived the day before, so I was still a bit jet lagged. Um, my my French, you know, was was good enough for reading and writing, but when it came to conversational French, I was kind of lost. And so I was wondering, what is going on? Have they kidnapped me? And so we're going up this mountain. It's getting steeper and steeper and colder and colder because it was summertime. Um, 
in, ter- in terms of their their summertime was July, so it should have been hot. But you know, there I was dressed in my summer clothes, getting colder by the minute. And let me show you a, a Google Drop pin of where where in France I'm talking about. So right there, um, where the red pin is at the, at the base of the Alps there. Um, so we we drive up an hour and a half and we get to uh, their farmhouse and. They seem like a very unassuming couple living in this stone house up in the mountains, running a farm. A simple life, it seemed. And while I was eating the most delicious salad, bread, and tarte provencale, I got to know them and their stories. And nothing could be further from the truth. Here I thought they were just a simple couple living a simple life, and that was not the case. During my three months um, in France, I spent every weekend and even gave up my one-week vacation in Italy to stay with Albert and Nicole because I wanted to soak up every bit of their story and who they were. Um, And I'll tell you why in a moment. Because that first lunch, Albert started telling me all what they were doing and who they were. And story after story, I was completely captivated by who they were. And I want to share that with you. So I've tried to kind of compile. There's so many, but I've tried to just tell you kind of um, the main gist of it. So Albert grew up um, in Aix-en-Provence, which, like I said, is an hour and a half away. And a beautiful place if you ever want to visit France. Um, And so he grew up in Aix-en-Provence. And he was born in 1942. So, you know, he grew up in kind of the 50s and 60s and right after the war. And he grew up a very staunch communist. His father was a communist. So he was a communist. His father was an atheist. So he was an atheist. And he was actually an, a successful young architect. And he was living in Aix-en-Provence. He had just gotten married to Nicole. Um, and Nicole had grown up Catholic, um, as most people in Europe did at that time. Um, but, you know, hadn't really gone to church as an adult. Albert believed that religion was the opiate of the masses. He believed that religion was for fools, a book of fairy tales uh, for the naive. But one day, their neighbors invited them over for a meal. Um, so, oh, nice thing to do, be polite. So they went over to, for, uh, to their house to eat this delicious meal. Um, they enjoyed themselves. And then um, they realized, hmm, something's missing. And you have to remember, these are the French, right? And so after they had this delicious meal, they realized there was no meat um, in this delicious meal that they had just had. And so they asked this couple, oh, um, uh, they didn't want to be impolite, so they were just like, oh, you know, it's a nice meal. But then they were invited a second time, and again, it was an all-vegetarian meal. And so then they asked this couple, how come, how come you don't have any meat? Um, how come you don't, um, you're vegetarian, basically, they figured out. And the couple um, didn't say it first, but eventually came out that they believed that the Bible taught um, the health principle that we should take good care of our bodies. Our bodies are the temples of God, um, and that vegetarian is a good way to keep our bodies healthy and, of course, uh, good for, for the environment and for the animals. And so Albert and Nicole, when they found out that these neighbors of theirs who they had become friends with were Christians, Albert took a step back and thought, oh, no. You know, here I thought they were normal, nice people, and I find out they're Christians. And he decided, you know what? I'm going to go back the next time with ammunition. So he opened up the Bible because he, he had all be, you know, his father had told him, you know, you have to keep your friends close and your enemies closer, right? So he wanted to know, he wanted to know uh, what the Bible said so that he could use it to refute them. So he started reading the Bible. And you can tell where this is going. As he read the Bible, not only did he come to realize that the Bible was true and that there was the words of God, but he experienced 
God convicting him that he was real and that he loved him and that he had a plan for his life. And so Albert, you know, this wasn't a matter of days. Of course, it took time, but he felt so convicted now. And he was so amazed and he was so passionate about wanting to live for God. Now, little known to Albert, Nicole was secretly reading her Bible um, and actually had been reading her Bible secretly for a while now. Um, and of course, her atheist husband, like she didn't really tell him. But then when he came out and said, hey, I've, I, I've been reading the Bible and I want to give my life to God, she was thrilled because she was feeling the same way. And so they became baptized. They sheepishly went back to their neighbors and said, hey, we want to be Christians too. Um, so their neighbors gave them Bible studies um, and they became baptized as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. But for Albert and Nicole, that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough just to acknowledge the Bible as true and just to acknowledge that God was their savior. He had been transformed by the Bible and he had been touched by God and he could not live the same way anymore. And so they prayed about it and they decided to get away from the city they sold everything they had. Albert had just won a prestigious project um, building uh, one of the main main buildings in Aix-en-Provence. Um, he gave it all up, sold it all, and bought a piece of land um, near this mountain village. Um, it's called Noyer-Jabron at the foot of the French Alps. And he decided he didn't want to chase success and wealth all his life anymore. He wanted to be close to nature. He wanted time to give Bible studies. Of course, his father was furious. Um, he was upset that his brilliant son was throwing his career away. But Albert knew exactly what he was doing. He went back to uni, got a degree in physical therapy and organic um, farming and agriculture, and he started an organic farm. He designed and built his own house, as you can imagine. And when he built it, he built extra rooms. And I can't remember exactly how many rooms there were. I used to clean them. But I, I, I felt like there were a lot. But there might have been only about six or so um, in addition to the family home. And he built these extra rooms because he wanted his house to be a sanctuary, a retreat from the hustle and bustle and stress of modern life. So first, they opened up their home to the sick who wanted to recover in the fresh air. They prepared fresh organic vegetarian meals for them, gave them physical therapy, and had them do light exercise by working in the fields. And as these visitors would see Albert and Nicole's care for them, they would inevitably ask, why are you doing this? And when they would start asking those questions, Albert would slowly but surely tell them about Jesus, the great healer. And people left their homes healed, not just in body, but in mind, body, and spirit. People with chronic pain, people with terminal illnesses. Word began to spread. More people started to come. And then young people, drug addicts, runaways, homeless, they all heard that there was a house in the mountains of France that gave shelter and refuge to those who had nowhere to go. So they had people from Spain and Portugal and Germany somehow finding out about this house in the mountains, and they came. Nicole told me that she started logging how many people they they had staying in their roof. And she said she stopped counting after 2,000 in one year because she said, I just got too busy to keep track. And when I turned to her and said, what? And you know, 
it's it's hard to host, right? And when I turned to, and, and it's not like they had a washing machine. Um, they had to go with the tractor to get the water from the nearby lake, bring it over. I, I took a lot of cold showers, you know. Um, it's it's not a place where it's easy to do laundry and turn over the sheets. And so to have over 2,000 visitors in your home, I turned to her and I said, wow, Nicole, that's amazing. And she turned to me and said, and this is all in French, but I'm translating for you. She said, this is not my house. This is God's house. I wake up in the morning wondering, am I doing enough, Lord? Am I doing enough with your house? You can imagine how humbled and inspired and challenged I was by this couple. You know, most of the people who stayed at their home stayed a few weeks or months, but some stayed for years. There was a, one young man who was 16 years old. He was in a uh, motorcycle gang, and he had no home. He had you know, nowhere to go, and somehow he ended up here. And uh, he came as a 16-year-old, stayed for years. You know, when he first came, he was, he was violent, he was rough, he was cursing, you know. After a few years, he became someone who they deemed worthy enough to marry their oldest daughter. So he ended up staying forever. Um, and I met, I met him, gentle, kind man. They had four children. The oldest son, Benoit, and I like hung out a lot. And um, it was just incredible to me because, you know, Albert was such a good storyteller. So he would tell the story and be like, and that man, guess who he is? And they'd be like, and it's Benoit's father. And I'd be like, what? You know? Um, and, you know, I would hear all these stories about all these people that they stayed with them. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. What an amazing life you've had. But little did I know there was more. Because their prayer was always, what more can I do for you, Jesus? The city had heard about this house where all these people came and, were transformed and, you know, became healthy and, and whole. And so the city had um, decided, you know what, we're going to send you some prisoners your way. Can you house them, make them work in the fields, et cetera, et cetera, and they pay, we'll pay you for it. So they prayed about it and said, okay. They had three young children at this time. Um, so the children stayed downstairs and the convicts stayed upstairs. And um, Albert would continue. And every, every person who would come through his house, he would, he would minister to them physically, but also spiritually. And so he was always doing Bible studies. Um, you know, he would always say, Nicole feeds the children physically. I feed them spiritually. So he was giving Bible studies one day. The windows were open. And um, he was giving a Bible study. And he quoted John 3.16. If you know it, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so he's quoting this verse, you know, as part of his Bible study. And a few hours later, when Albert went upstairs to give food to, you know, the different prisoners up there, um, one prisoner grabbed him. And, you know, you can imagine, these are convicts. Albert's a bit, you know, worried, like, what's going on? And the convict grabbed Albert and just stared at him. And Albert's like, okay, what's going on? And he said, is that true? And Albert's like, what, what do you mean? What's true? And he said, quiconque, which is the French word for whomever. He said, is that true? Quiconque? And Albert had no idea what he was talking about. Hours had passed. And he said, quiconque, whoever, whoever, you said, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever, is that true? And Albert, now realizing what he was talking about, said, yes, it's true. And he said, even me? Stop crying, your baby cry. <laughs> even me? And 
Albert said, "Yes, Kikong, whoever, even you. I've done terrible things," said the man. Kikong, whoever," said Albert. The man was silent, but there were tears streaming down his face. He later became a church pastor. Albert said that he had personally attended over three hundred baptisms of people he had given Bible studies to. So that's personally attended. There were hundreds others that he couldn't attend, or you know, didn't know what happened to them after. In fact, my second Sabbath there, there was a baptism. <laughs>、um, you can imagine three hundred baptisms. There's quite a few that year,、um, and this baptism was of a former French ski champion. She and her son chose to be baptized in the Alps, so we drove further up north in the freezing cold. And I don't only a, a ski champion would choose to immerse herself in freezing cold weather. I felt sorry for the pastor who had no choice in this. And they were baptized in the freezing cold, like there was snow all around、um, Alps. It was beautiful though. Albert was all smiles that day. And you would think three hundred plus baptisms that he had personally brought to Christ, two thousand plus people that they have hosted in their home—surely that is enough. But the prayer of their hearts every morning was, "Jesus, what more can we do for you?" I learned that in two thousand and one. Nicole was very sick with some rare disease. He, he told me in French. I had no idea what it was,、um, but it was some disease that basically you died from. But instead of dying, she went into a coma for a year. And during that year, Albert sat by her side. Now, my whole life, before and after meeting them, I've never met a couple more devoted to each other than Nicole and Albert. In fact, one time I remember asking Albert, "How come you never became a pastor?" You know, he loves giving Bible studies. You know, and he turned to me and said, "You know what? When I first became a Christian, I wanted to be a pastor, and I prayed about it, and I asked God, 'God, what what do you want me to do?'" And he said, "I heard as clear as as a bell, God say, 'I want you to love your wife.'" And so he said, "My whole life, I decided then and there, I'm just going to love my wife and do whatever she tells me to do." And she tells me to go give Bible studies, <laughs> and she tells me to go help people. And while I was there, every day I would just see them. They were the most loving couple, as if they were newlyweds. You know, never laid their hands off each other.、Um, and, you know, we'd be in the middle of a meal talking, and Albert would just stop the conversation and just look at her and say, "Isn't she beautiful?" This, they're in their sixties, you know, and and he would just look at her with this adoration in his eyes. Isn't she beautiful? Mid sentence, he would make me go out at five in the morning and pick strawberries for her. You know, he just loved this woman. And so, can you imagine? Well, she's in a coma for a year. How devastated he was. He stayed with her side every day, hoping and praying she'll wake up. Doctor said, "Give up. She's not going to come back." But he stayed by her side, and you know when she woke up miraculously after a year. And and realized that had been a year had passed. She turned to Albert and said, "What? You mean you've been with me this whole year and hasn't been and haven't been giving Bible studies?" And to be fair to Albert, he had snuck out while she was sleeping and given Bible studies downstairs in the corridor. But when she found out that you know he had devoted his whole year to just being with her, she said, "It's time to go back to serving the Lord." Even though she was still、uh, frail, in fact, for the rest of her life she remained very frail. So she couldn't host anymore. So they prayed, "Okay, God, we can't host people anymore because she physically just couldn't do it anymore. She she stayed mostly kind of sitting,、um, and just was very weak."
So they prayed and said, God, what more can we do for you? They're 60. They're not 40. They're not 20. 60. After 35 years of service saying, Jesus, what more can we do for you? They prayed and said, God, give us an answer by 10 o'clock the next morning, which was a pretty tall order. But you know what? 10 o'clock the next morning, they get a letter. And you have to understand, where they live, you can't get letters. Um, in fact, I was working at a museum in Aix-en-Provence. So every moment I got, every weekend, and whenever I could go visit them, I have to hop on a bus to Sisterhome, which is like the nearest city, and then I would have to call them and say, I'm, I'm in Sisteron. And then they would have to drive down an hour and a half to that city and pick me up and take me up there. So the postman didn't go up there. They would have to come down to the city to pick up their mail. But somehow that next day at 10 o'clock, the mailman came to their door and said, I have a letter for you. 10 o'clock. They opened the letter. And it was a letter from a friend in Kinshasa in the Dem Democratic Republic of Congo which was in the middle of a violent war. And the friend said, there are people dying at my doorsteps. I gave them food or money, but the next day, hundreds more are crying for help. I don't know what to do. Please come and help me. Nicole turned to Albert and said, you must go to Africa and see what we can do to help. So Albert, 60-year-old man who had come so close to losing his wife, who had already dedicated 35 years of, of his life to God, got on a plane and went to one of the most dangerous and desolate places in that time, right in the middle of a war zone. And Albert told me that they hugged at the airport and said goodbye just in case he never came back. He got there and he saw the starving men, women, and children. And he prayed and said, God, what can I do for you? And God gave him this idea. And, you know, to us today, it's, it's an idea we've heard before. But you have to remember this is, you know, back in 2002, this is a man who, you know, was, an, was immersed in his farm and organic. He wasn't necessarily researching humanitarian efforts. But God gave him this idea of, oops. Uh, James, can you go to the next slide? Thanks. The, of a micro loan, a petite commerce, he called it. Basically, he would lend $30 to a widow, and he chose a widow because he couldn't help everyone. So he saw the most vulnerable people um, were the widows. So he would lend $30 to a widow with no interest to start a small business. She would then be trained on how to sell um, something, make profit, and then save that money and pay it back so that she could have dignity as a human being. This was very important to him. He prayed about him, was like, if we just give them money, there's always going to be more need. So he said, I want to give them back their dignity. I want to give them, I want to empower them. And so he um, had these con three conditions that the woman would agree to. One, that she would feed her children once a day. Two, that she would pay back a little every week. No matter how little, it didn't matter. Just even if it was a cent, just pay back something every week. And three, that she cannot use up her capital, which, you know, was, is such a temptation when you're in need. But the condition was, don't use it up. You need to save the capital for business. Albert partnered with a local church elder named Placide. And together they interviewed and started with just 12 women because that's all the money Albert had with him at the time, about 500 euros. So it was enough for um, about 12 women, $30, U.S. dollars they used. And... Each woman would take the $30 and buy food or product, and, um, and Albert stayed there long enough to help start farms and teach them how to, how to uh, farm so that they could use the produce. Um, and these women would sell the products to 14 to 16 hours a day. They would work. And at the end of that day, they would make a dollar to $3 if they were good saleswomen.
But that small profit of a dollar to three dollars a day had a tremendous impact on her community, because this is what would happen: she would use that money、um, to pay someone to get her family wood and water. Because she's working, so she would pay someone else to do that, and so then whatever money she paid them would help that family, and then she would also use the money、um, to pay back a little bit of her loan. Which and what they would do is once she had paid back all thirty dollars, they would give it right back to her. So now she has sixty dollars to work with. So they never get the money back, but they're always putting the money back、um, back towards other women or back to the woman if she wants it to to double her capital, which increases her profit. She would be able to, of course, feed her children, the sick and the elderly around her, with that money,、um, and of course, because now they're finally eating, they were less sick, and so they were able to help out more as well. And here's the thing: she also paid tithe because Albert started with the women in the church because they were the women that he he knew, and and these women pay tithe. They faithfully paid one tenth of whatever profit they made. And this money then fed the pastors and their families who were starving as well. And this little project that he started with just twelve women, you know, and I think he was he was there for、um, a month the first time. You would think that now he's done enough, right? Here's some pictures, by the way, that I got from Albert later、um, of some of the women in their commerce selling food. You would think that after this, it's enough. He's gone. He's de- dedicated a month of his time and, of course, his own money to go. But every day, Albert and Nicole continued to pray. What more can we do for you, Jesus? Albert flew back to Congo every six months after that first time in 2002, taking more money and supplies and expanding the project. So at first, you know, he used just his personal funds, but then he eventually made a pamphlet. So this was the pamphlet he showed me in 2004.、Um, it says "Make Life Triumph," and that, that's what he was really all about. He was saying, "We're not giving them a handout. We're not just doing something that,、um, you know, is is creating codependency." He said, "We're making them self-sufficient. We're empowering them. We're training them." And so he made this pamphlet so that he could share his project with with his church members. And this was his mantra. This Bible text was what drew, drove this project. It's a passage in Isaiah 58 that forever changed the way I view this text. It says, "This this is God speaking." And he in Isaiah 58 he talks about how you know God's people were you know praying to Him and fasting and doing all these things. And he says, "That's not what I want." He says, "No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you." Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn, and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward, and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then, when you call, I will. The Lord will answer. Yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry. Help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness, and the darkness around you will be bright as the noon. You see, Albert loved this passage, and you know, I remember him reading it to me and saying, "You see, we break the chains of oppression." He said, "Poverty 
is an oppression. Not only does it affect you physically, but mentally, emotionally, morally, spiritually, it cripples you. So he said, we need to break that bond, empower them so they can have the dignity of being their own person, of making their own money, of being self-sufficient, but also being able to take care of their family. And of course, he gave them Bible studies and, and ministered to their spiritual needs as well as uh, in the local church as well. Since 2002, this initiative resulted in amazing chain reactions. They started with 12 widows, but quickly, um, every year, he went back every six months. And so you can see that they increased. Every time he went back, he would you know, interview more women, get more women on the program. And while he was away, his partner, Placide, would do the same. And so as you can see that by 2006, which was the last time I spoke with Albert personally, they had 500 widows on the program. Was that enough? Nicole and Albert prayed, Jesus, what more can we do for you? And he realized that these women, you know, they would do their best to pay back. But sometimes they couldn't. He said, actually, a lot of them couldn't pay back, mainly because they would get sick and then they couldn't work anymore. So he realized we need to do more. So what did he do? He created pharmacies and medical centers um, staffed by the local nurses and doctors and pharmacists, uh, Adventist um, health professionals. And what they would do is they would lend medicine and provide health care on loan with no interest. So just like the microloan, no interest. Because the Bible says don't charge interest to your fellow believers and to people you're trying to help. And so they, um, you know, if someone was sick, they could get the health care they needed so they could get back and be well and continue to work. And then they could pay back when they could um, and when they were able, however much they were able. You know, they knew that this helped a lot of people. But Albert said there were some surprising results that he didn't anticipate. One was that, sorry, these are the pictures of some of the medical centers. One I mentioned before was that this fed the families, the pastor's families who were starving. Um, and he was, Albert was, was so happy about this, that by helping these women, this was actually helping the pastors and their families as well. And you know what he said? He said that these women, even though they were so poor, were so faithful in paying their tithe that this village, which was one of the poorest villages in that area, had the highest tithe return. Because it's often the poor who are most generous. It's like that story in the Bible where the poor widow who had just two pennies, right, two mites, she put all she had in the offering basket. Meanwhile, there's a rich person who gave, uh, you know, gold coins. And Jesus says that woman gave, that widow gave more because she gave all that she had. And I, and I, and I really find this in life that these, these um, individuals who, you know, have barely enough to feed their children once a day were so faithful in giving back their tithe, which fed the pastors and their families and also blessed the whole community. In addition to that, um, these women were lending money to other women. So not everybody was privileged to be on this program, but then they saw the needs of other women. So then of their own money, then they would then lend to their friends and neighbors. And he was so happy about that. Also, people got baptized because people would ask, why are you doing this? Why are you giving of your life? Right? He would fly down there and you know, spend time with them. Why are you giving of yourself, of your money, and giving no interest? In, you know, this is not something that's profitable to him at all. Why are you doing this? And Albert would tell them, because I love you. 
and because God loves you. Albert's partner in this program, Placide, um, I had exchanged emails with him in 2006, and this is what he said. He said, in this place where millions have died from war, violence, hunger, and disease, I don't want the cameras to fix eternally in the images of a horror, but I want them to focus on the initiatives that give back dignity to the women and their children who have been so violated. And he shared some testimonies of some of the women, and here's just one. One woman said, I rejoice that I can feed my children and send them to school. You have helped me leave a legacy for my children long after I'm gone. I praise and thank God for his goodness. There's so many more stories I could tell. But I wanted to tell you this much. Um, Because, you know, Nick Albert and Nicole, like I said in the beginning of my sermon, they changed forever for me what it meant to be a Christian. Um, you know, so for so much of my life, I wanted to be kind, I wanted to be helpful, I wanted to serve, but so much of myself was in the way. And I often wanted God to do more for me. But Albert and Nicole showed me that a Chris, true Christian lives completely for Christ and asks God, what can I do for you? Every day, each day, more than the day before. Jesus told a parable. He said, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. I can still picture Albert holding um, a grain of wheat in his hand as he read this passage to me. And I still remember how he, he was a man of passion. He was always doing things. He was so excited all the time. And I remember he was drawing me a picture of a grain and, and the endosperm and, you know, the whole, how, how it germinates. And, you know, he's doing all, all the agriculture drawing to me, architecturally showing me how it all works. And I remember so distinctly under, understanding in that moment for the first time that when we live for ourselves, we might have a good life. It might be a full, rich life. But at the end of it, it's gone. That single wheat remains alone. But when that wheat dies, in, in other words, symbolically gets buried in the ground. And then something amazing happens. Through that self-denial, through that burial of, of our own kind of selfishness, comes a harvest, comes a sprout. Uh, and God, God, of course, does that process of growing us to produce a harvest that leads to not just our eternal life, but the eternal lives of so many people that we can impact. I tried to reconnect with um, Albert and Nicole as I was preparing for this sermon and discovered that Nicole had passed away in 2009 and Albert in 2016. But I was able to reconnect with their grandson by stalking on Facebook um, and doing a lot of hours of research online. And I told him I was preaching about his grandparents. And this is the grandson, Benoit, remember the the, the 14-year-old that I hung out with. And um, he remembered me, which was nice. And I asked him, hey, does that project in Congo still continue? And he said, yes, thousands of people are still being impacted today. 
their legacy lives on, even though they have passed on, because they gave their lives for Jesus. You know, it's so easy to get caught up in the culture that we live in, where we live for ourselves, and that's that's what we're kind of wired to do from birth, right? That um, we we go to school, we get the job, we 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 gain, we sell, we buy. You know, we we have all these kind of milestones that we're trying to reach, and they're good things. They're not bad things. But I wonder what would happen if all of us asked every day, Jesus. What more can I do for you? I wonder if you would be able to live a life that is abundant, that is meaningful, that is joyful, that is exciting, that is extraordinary. Because that's what Albert Nicole taught me. That while we're not all called to war-torn areas or we're not all called to convert our homes into charity Airbnbs, but we are all called to live extraordinary lives. Extraordinary because we are called to follow Jesus, to be His hands and His feet, to be His mouthpiece, to be His loving heart, and that is an extraordinary purpose which leads to an extraordinary life. So I want to challenge you today, just as I was challenged years ago and continue to be challenged now, to ask ourselves the question: Jesus, what more can I do for you today? And that every day we would. Come to experience a God who has great plans for us, and who has an extraordinary life for us—a life that will lead to such an abundance of harvest and such a legacy that one day in heaven, when I get to meet Albert and Nicole again, I can't wait to tell them what an impact they have had on people that they didn't even know existed. Who knew that? Fifteen years later, in Australia, <laughs> people would be hearing their story, and so I want to leave you with that challenge. And as we go into discussion, I pray that we would be honest, that we would be open to hearing what God has to share with us. I'm gonna just.